The Christmas story, as it's often told, takes on this sort of fairy tale-like aura. It's a magical story with quasi-semi-saints in the leading role. And so the entire Christmas story, from Mary and Joseph to the shepherds and magi, has a sort of enchanted, dreamlike quality. And so we're hesitant to do anything that might break the spell, to eliminate the mystery or reject the supernatural. And yet we must not also not forget that the Bible's Christmas narrative is a very human story, a story that is at times downright mundane. And the cast of the Christmas story is littered with some very ordinary people, people who nonetheless found themselves in extraordinary circumstances. From a humble teenager who's plucked seemingly out of the blue to be the mother of Jesus, to her fiance, an unassuming but noble carpenter, um, from the lowly band of shepherds to a troop of foreign astrologers who make a 400-mile trek to see what they call the King of the Jews. The characters in this story are real people who found themselves in a story infinitely bigger than themselves. And one reason this story grips us is to see how these ordinary people respond in such honest and yet amazing ways to their part in that cosmic drama. Now, none of us have seen a, an angel or we've not followed a star, and yet we have something to learn from the way each character in the story responds to the experience that they have when these miraculous events take place. The tension in each scene of the story is between the wonder and mystery that so impresses us and the nitty-gritty reality of the ordinary elements that form the core of each one of these scenes in the story. The danger for us is to over-sentimentalize everything such that we uh, um, just overlook and gloss over the more commonplace realities and turn these stories into something they never quite were. It makes them both unreal and unattainable and obscures the lessons for our lives that each chapter in the Christmas story reveals. And so this Christmas season during Advent, each week we're going to take a different character, a different character or set of characters in this story and explain both the everyday reality as well as the cosmic purposes that their lives um, uh, reveal. And the first chapter we're going to look at is the leading lady of the Christmas story, Mary, the mother of Jesus. And Mary is the most unlikely of heroines. She came from an out-of-the-way place, a town so small and insignificant that some would later slander it, saying, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Mary wasn't royalty. She didn't come from money or from a prominent family. No mention is made of her parents, which has led some to speculate that Mary was an orphan, and perhaps that's true. More likely is that she was like every other peasant girl in Nazareth, living out an ordinary life in an ordinary town with some very modest dreams. Dreams of nothing more than a quiet life with her carpenter husband and perhaps a few children. Dreams of living out that life with people she had known for her entire life. And it was hardly an impressive resume that Mary had. She was young, ordinary, likely uneducated, with little potential for greatness. And yet Mary was the first to learn of God's plan. The first to be chosen to be the mother of the Son of God. What a contrast you might ex from what you might expect. We live in a world that's a meritocracy. So we assume that rewards go to the overachievers. Those with the perfect pedigree, to the gifted and the wealthy and the well-connected. And then God goes and chooses someone that everyone would have overlooked. I was telling some friends of mine this week about something in my childhood that shaped me. And it wasn't a person or an event. It was a date, August 30th. August 30th is my birthday. So why is that so important? 
Because in my hometown, if you were born on September 1st or after, you went to school the next year. But if you were born before then, you went to school that year. And since I was born on August 30th, I went to school two days before I would have gone the next year. I was always the youngest in my grade. And to make things worse, my dad, as my dad would always call me, uh, I was a late bloomer. I was small for my age. I was always a little bit socially ill at ease. In fact, it would be a couple of years beyond high school when I would sort of catch up um, and develop more confidence. During high school, I was very far from being named most likely to succeed. I didn't finish near the top of my class. I wasn't the star on any team. In fact, I wasn't on any team. I was virtually a nobody and completely forgettable. And in, in almost all those ways, and even more, Mary was equally forgettable. That's what made Gabriel's visit to Mary so improbable and so unexpected. Even the timing seemed off. If you know a little about the history of Israel, you know that at this particular time, they were under Roman rule. There were also squabbles between two sectarian religious tribes, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. There was a government that was rife with corruption and most had lost, change, uh, lost hope that the change that they had anticipated, that the prophets had promised, was even possible for their nation. And it's here that the story begins. If you'd like to follow along on what we're going to look at, you can in Luke chapter 1, beginning with verse 26, and it's on page 1557, 1557, if you'd like to follow along, although the words are also on the screen. And here's how Luke begins this story and this chapter, this scene about Mary in the story of the Christmas narrative. He writes, In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Now let me just pause there for a moment, and let's just ask the question, what did Gabriel mean? You who are highly favored, the Lord is with you. Well, the phrase highly favored refers to kindness and honor beyond that which is usual or even deserved. And the idea is that Mary is uniquely privileged. In older translations of the Bible, you'll find this translated and said that Mary is full of grace. So favored grace, what's the connection here? Well, that's because the word favor that's uh, translated here has at the root the same word for grace or gift. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago, that grace is God's blessing, goodness, kindness, and forgiveness given to each one of us. Grace is a gift that we don't deserve. So grace is at the center of what God is doing that first Christmas. God showed Mary grace. The baby she bore embodied grace. His message would be a message of grace, and his life would demonstrate grace. Christian tradition has long taught, and I agree, that Mary was a remarkable young woman that she was unusually full of faith and someone who had proved herself trustworthy. And yet that is not Luke's point here. He doesn't tell us that Mary was more righteous and devout than any other young woman in the village. He makes it clear that what Mary received was a gift, a gift beyond anything she could have expected, beyond anything that she deserved. It's a story repeated over and over in the Bible, a story where God elevates the humble over the rich and powerful where God chooses the unlikeliest over the more likely and expected. And it's a story, I think, that gives many of us hope. Not that we'll end up with a role quite as important as the one Mary filled, but a story that gives us hope that God can use us 
despite the quality of our resume or even the mistakes that we've made in the past. God is fond of using the unlikeliest of us to accomplish his purposes. If God chose Mary, the hope for us is that perhaps he will choose us to do something significant that he needs done. With what the angel said, it's no wonder that she responded as she did because in verse 29, it says, Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. By the way, virtually in every time, every time in the Bible that an angel appears, people are either afraid or troubled. Um, and so the angel immediately tries to put her at ease by saying, do not be afraid, Mary. You've found favor with God. So the second time she's told that she will have favor. Then the angel gives her the news that will change her life forever, beginning in verse 31. He says, you will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. Now, it's at this point in the story when Mary must have wondered, am I dreaming? Is this really happening? Now, she had long hoped that one day she'd be a mother, but that she expected that would happen after her wedding day, not before. So this news was beyond anything that she could imagine, and it wasn't necessarily welcome news in some way. But Mary quickly understood, though, that this story wasn't about her. In fact, it wasn't really primarily at all about her. Something much larger was going on. And the news the angel had made it clear that God was using her to change history. The baby that she would carry and give birth to would be the one who would fulfill the hopes and dreams of an entire nation. Because what the angel was describing is that she would be the mother of the long-expected, long-awaited Messiah. And yet, the angel's message raised a practical question because Mary was a practical young woman. In verse 34, it says, How can this be, Mary asked the angel, since I'm a virgin? I've talked about this before, even in the last few weeks, that um, with other miracles in the Bible, people today assume that people in Jesus' day were simply more gullible than we are today. Many assume that uh, people would, were so much more willing than we are to believe supernatural explanations. But look at what Mary says here. She says, how can this be? Mary understood biology. She understood how things work. She had no frame of reference for what the angel said. But then the angel explains things. In verse 35, the angel says, the Holy Spirit will come on you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. And then in verse 37, for no word from God will ever fail. Now, I don't know about you, but the angel's explanation is helpful, but it doesn't answer all the questions, maybe even the primary question that many of us might have been looking for. In fact, it's difficult to understand exactly what the angel means. About the most that we can take away is that the child that, Amy, uh, that Mary would bear is the result of direct intervention by God. For some of us, that might not be enough, but for Mary it is, because in verse 38, she says, I am the Lord's servant. May your word to me be fulfilled. And then it says the angel left her. So imagine just for a moment what she might have been thinking. This humble girl from this insignificant town is told that she will give birth to someone who will be the Lord of the entire world. What must Mary have thought? Now remember, she is perhaps 13 to 16 at most, was all of this too much? It raises a question, at least in my mind, and that is, did Mary want to be Mary? Was this a choice that she made? Now, we're so familiar with the story that Mary's response seems obvious to us. Of course she'd say yes. Today, Mary is most, 
arguably the most famous woman who's ever lived. There are pictures of Mary and her child in every great museum in the world. She's been revered by hundreds of millions through the centuries. But is her response really so obvious? Think of what this meant for Mary. For one, technically, at least for the sake of appearances, Mary would be an unwed mother. Now for us, an engagement is a preparatory period before marriage. It requires a commitment, but it's considered provisional. If during the engagement we encounter problems, we can break off the engagement with little or no consequences, other than perhaps some embarrassment and a few lost deposits. But nothing is legally binding. But in Mary's day, it was very different. The text says that Mary was pledged to be married to uh, Joseph. And unlike our engagements in those days, the pledge or the engagement was a binding, a legally binding agreement. To break an engagement required not just breaking off the engagement, it required an actual divorce, and the only grounds for divorce under Jewish law was adultery. Adultery technically was punishable by stoning to death, although few were actually stoned, but all were shamed, as were their children, often for the rest of their lives. That's why Mary tell, or Matthew, and we'll learn next week, tells us that when Joseph discovered that Mary was pregnant, he decided quietly to divorce her. So when Mary said yes, when she said, may your word to me be fulfilled, she was saying yes to the shame of being an unwed mother during a time when this carried significant social stigma. Sure, she could tell her story. You know, an angel visited me and the Holy Spirit came on me and I was with child, and who would believe her? As she was saying yes to the uncertainty that came, she was also wondering how Joseph would respond, her honorable fiance. Would he publicly humiliate her as he could have and send her away? Of course not, you say. Joseph loved her. Doesn't love always come through? But as much as Joseph might have loved her, if he thought she was unfaithful to him, if he cared about his reputation, she had to know that he would have some second thoughts. That's why it's so amazing that Mary didn't stop the angel and tell him, hey, I'm not really ready to be a mother. She didn't stop him and say, listen, my body's my own. Instead, she said, yes, I am the Lord's servant. May your word to me be fulfilled. So Mary here had a choice, and it was not an easy one. And yet what she said was yes. Now, we know how things turned out. But remember that Mary did not. And yet she said yes to God even before anything else in the story happened. And so her yes came at great risk. And later, as she would discover, it would bring great pain. And yet she did say yes, and that one decision shaped not only the rest of her life, but the rest of human history. So what are we to do with Mary's story? On one hand, Mary is easy to relate to. We've all met dozens of Marys. We even may feel like Mary, humble, seemingly an insignificant young woman who was easy to overlook. Like her, many of us feel overlooked, trapped by circumstances, destined to live quiet, maybe insignificant lives. And at least for some of us, that might be okay. We're not looking for headlines. We're not anxious for our lives to go viral. In fact, a quiet life would be just fine. And then God interrupts. Interruptions are frustrating. They mess with our routine. They can make us anxious, even afraid. And interruptions often require that we make changes. So like Mary, we may find our lives interrupted. It may be in a small way or in a big way. It may be in a good way or it may be in a difficult way. And when we do, we have a decision about what we're going to do. Will we ignore or refuse what God is asking of us? Or, like Mary, will we say yes? 
We stand in a long line of people who have said yes to God and to God's interruptions from characters in the Bible like Abraham and Moses and Samuel, like the prophets Isaiah and Jeremiah, like the Good Samaritan and St. Paul, to the saints and martyrs through history. What we learn from these examples and many more is that any yes said to God will not be wasted. Our yes may not be easy. It may lead to places of pain and challenge, but when we say yes to God, he will use us. So here's the question for you. Will you say yes to Jesus? Will you say yes if God interrupts? It's not an easy question to answer. We have to think about it. We can't just say yes without understanding that there may be some sacrifices, and the sacrifices will be different for different people at different times in our lives. For Mary, it was not just the sacrifice of reputation or the sacrifice of inconvenience. Eventually, it would be the sacrifice of loss because one day she would stand with several of her closest friends and one of her son's friends, a man named John, while Jesus hung dying on a Roman cross. Our yes to Jesus may not be what Mary's was, but eventually each one of us will be asked to make a sacrifice of one sort or another. And when we are, will we do what Mary did and say yes to Jesus? Several times a year, someone will ask me, how can I know God's will for my life? That might not actually be the specific question. They'd be me faced with a decision and want to understand how they might discern what the right next steps might be. And there are a lot of ways that we can answer that question. I might tell someone, look at the Bible and see what the Bible has to say about these kinds of, of decisions. Or pray, or seek the advice of others who are wise, who may know more about the decision that you're making than you do. Analyze your options. And by the way, all of those are important and necessary steps in discerning God's will for our lives. But in my experience, I tell people sometimes, worry less about the specific decision that you're making. Worry instead about whether you are willing to do what God asks of you when he asks you to do it. For one, most of the things that we need to know about God's will for our lives, we already know from the Bible, from what the Bible has to say about basic everyday decisions. And so we know that we're to live lives of integrity, to be faithful to our spouses, to be kind, to love others the way that God loves us. For these decisions, the question is not, what shall I do, but will I obey? Of course, there are big decisions that each one of us needs to make, decisions that aren't quite so clear. Where to go to school, what job to take, who to marry, what house to buy, and so on. But one thing I've discovered is that our willingness to obey God in the little things, and sometimes the not so little, is ended up re being rewarded by God with even more guidance and more responsibility. So obedience helps us not only know what we need to do next, but it also gives us opportunities because God knows that we can be trusted. In other words, if we say yes to God, even when we don't want to do it, if we trust him when the decision's clear, but we're tempted to say no, either because we think we know better or because we just don't want to pay the price, but we still obey, God has a way of rewarding us and blessing us. And that's not to say that our lives will be clear sailing from that time on. In fact, we may say, face significant hardship by making a decision that God invites us to make. Saying yes to Jesus may mean setting aside some plans that we've had for a long time. It may mean giving up hopes and dreams that we've cherished, even for a lifetime. It may mean risks without the promise of reward. For Mary, God's favor was not a life of bliss, but hardship and pain. And yet she responds, I am the Lord's servant. May your word to me be fulfilled. 
At Christmas time, we often focus on the gifts, and rightly so, because at the heart of the Christmas story, there is a gift, the gift of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. But we must never forget that that gift came at a cost. So the Christmas story contains not only a gift, but also an invitation, an invitation to give ourselves wholeheartedly to God, just as Mary did. Christmas is not just about what we can get, but about our willingness to say with Mary, I am the Lord's servant. May your will for me be fulfilled. Like Mary, most of us will admit that occasionally we feel insignificant. But rather than feeling sorry for ourselves, we need to remember the lesson of Mary's life, that insignificant or not, God can use us to accomplish his purposes. Mary shows us how to respond to the unexpected. I am the Lord's servant. May it be to me as you have said. And she was willing to obey just as we must. Mary trusted the angel. She obeyed God's will for her life. She trusted God even when she didn't know what the outcome would be. Even though she didn't knew, she knew and had been told that the future would bring hardship and pain. And because she obeyed, here we are 2,000 years later talking about this ordinary and yet also remarkable young woman. Nowhere does it say that God chose Mary because she was the most righteous. She was under no illusions that she deserved the role that God gave her. But because she obeyed, we have what we might even say is a fairy tale that we all love, a true story. The magic in the story comes when a very young woman, a very ordinary young woman, has a difficult decision and she says yes to God. Yes to join a story infinitely bigger than herself. And so when we read this story, we can too, at times have this enchanted, almost dreamlike quality to the story. But we also must never forget that the cast of the characters of the Christmas story are made up of some very ordinary people like Mary. People who, by the simple act of saying yes, can join God's cosmic drama that he's weaving together, even in our lives, even today. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for Mary's example, for the receptivity she had to the angel's message that he brought that day, for her availability for her obedience, for her willingness to say yes to what it was that you had for her. Father, we know that the road that she traveled in her life was not an easy one. And yet, Father, we honor her today because of her decision to be obedient, despite what might have been some very difficult decisions that she had to make. Father, you may be asking uh, several in this room, if not all of us, to make decisions, little or big decisions, that require us to say yes, even though we don't know what the future looks like, even though the decision that we may be asked to make may be a difficult one. Give us the courage to follow in Mary's example and to say yes to you. We pray this in Jesus' name.